Hey everyone, we are back for another episode of the Gathering Movement interview series. I'm here with a very special guest today. This is my dad, Tim Smith, and he's going to be talking all about the future of visionary leadership. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Bridget. This is cool. Um, I remember talking to a couple people and they were like, why haven't you had your dad on the show? <laughs> Now's your chance. Here we go. Um, so to give everyone a little backstory, personally, Dad, you have been a very inspiring person on my own entrepreneurial journey, just oh, in terms you. of thinking big, starting small, doing the little things necessary day in and day out to to grow, evolve, learn, and yeah, get to where I wanted to be. So I wanted to start our conversation today, kind of taking it back in your life and hearing a little bit about your childhood and how you realized that you were a leader. How I realized, okay. Well, um, you know, I, I had a childhood just like everybody else. You know, I had friends, I had enemies. It was, you know, there were good and bad things about it. Um, I mean, I think that a couple of things I can point to that at the time it had no meaning to me because I was a child. I didn't really appreciate it. Um, when back in those days, we had what were called safety patrols in elementary school. That meant kids who would leave five minutes before the end of the day or before lunch and go and stand at various corners with these belts on <clears throat> and safety belts. And they, they were empowered to stop traffic so that children could cross the streets. So you had, you know, five and six year olds and the 12 year olds would go out, stand there and get the traffic to stop so the kids could walk across the streets. Well, by the time I was in sixth grade finishing elementary school, I was made the captain of the whole thing, you know, <laughs> And I probably have never told you that one because it's really a little more, you know, remote. Um, so certainly there was that kind of thing. And then I was in eighth grade and ninth grade and I was um, chosen to be the lead reporter on a television program of what was going on in my um, school at the time that cable television had just come out. And part of cable television was programming for public access. It's still there if you go to your, if you have, If you haven't gotten rid of cable, public access program is generally still there. Well, they asked me to be this reporter. And so for two years, I was Tim Smith of MJ Maple Junior High, MJH News. And I would go around. I interviewed a state senator and all kinds of people that were visiting school. So there was always that. And then in high school, I guess it really kind of came into being because uh, as soon as we got to high school, it was 10th grade in my particular high school. I was voted in as class president and I was class president until we graduated high school and literally spoke at the graduation and everything else. So, you know, I, I think obviously somewhere along the way in high school, it dawned on me that there's something about my personality that attracts people to me or that they trust me or that they look to me somehow, um, that they, they feel I'm somehow responsible enough and, you know, uh, whatever to be in that kind of a position. So I guess I would, So that's kind of how it all got going, I suppose. Hmm. That's super interesting. And yeah, I never heard the story about the the hall monitor, the the patrol. So that's a good right. one. When do you think it like planted into your mind that there were leaders and then there were like visionary leaders? That's a that's a very good question. Um, you know, I think that it probably started to dawn on me. 
I would say in around 1990, believe it or not, I was then five years into my career in the investment financial planning business. I had very quickly moved up in the company I started with um, to be a sales manager, a recruiter, ultimately a partner after seven years being there. But after five years of being there, I had made a shift in the way that I did business. Initially, I did it because uh, of economics. I really needed to make a change. I wasn't doing well. But then it dawned on me at a certain point that the particular way I had gone was a far better way to work with clients than the way I had initially come into the business and had been doing. And um, I really felt that that was going to be the future of what happened in financial services, financial planning, investment management. Um, And it turned out to be correct. And it not only turned out to be correct, I caught a wave that has been a trend for 25 years in the investment business um, and built a sizable company based upon that trend. So, you know, I think it's, that's probably when it started to dawn on me that I'm seeing things differently from other people. Everybody around me was sort of mired in um, the, the transactional side of financial services, which is to say you sell something, you earn a commission. It's a one moment kind of a thing. And, I was very oriented towards the relationship side of the business and managing money. And there were just a lot of reasons why charging a fee, which means a percentage of the money that you manage, charging that long-term instead of getting paid one time up front and never talking to people again, mm-hmm. that for me was just a, to me, a, I, I, it, the, the other way didn't make sense basically. And it has turned out be, to be correct because there has been a monumental shift in the investment business in the United States, probably globally, where people went from that transaction-based thing. In my time, there used to be something called a stockbroker. That job really doesn't exist anymore. Now it's a wealth manager, and everybody manages money for people. Um, and I was at the forefront, the vanguard of that change, and I saw that it was that the other way really was not going to be – to me, it was not going to be the best way long-term – and it turned out to be correct. So that's probably about when I kind of started to realize, you know what, I see things differently from the people I'm with, the people that I had been partnered with and working with, who were all wonderful people. They they were just in a different paradigm than me. It's funny that you uh, talk about the relationship piece and you might be psychic because as you were talking, I was like, yeah, I want to ask him about that. Um, I was just on a podcast the other day and we were talking about growing a business and what's important. And I said something I learned from my dad was relationships matter. So why do you think relationships matter in not only building a business, but in being an entrepreneur? Well, I think there are several key aspects to any sort of success. And one of them is that you can't do it alone. You need people to work with, and you need customers of some kind. Uh, And everybody who wants to work with you, people want to work with people that they trust, and people want to buy from somebody that they trust. And so trust becomes critical. Where there is trust, there can be a relationship. And where there is a relationship, you can generally think that that person cares long-term about this interaction between himself, him and myself. Uh, And so in, in everything in life that from my experience now, and I'll be 58 soon, everything in life, uh, who, you know, matters. It's not the only thing, but it is absolutely critical 
to how fast you can move forward, in particular in business. Because if you have no contacts, nobody likes you, no friendships, no relationships, you know, the, you're starting below ground zero. Yeah. If that's where you are. But if you're starting from a place where, you know, you believe in relationships, you engender trust because you treat people properly in relationships, you, you know, you, you just relate well, but also you're trustworthy with people. Um, you know, there's, there's a certain, I think, magnetic aspect to that, that from a leadership standpoint, it's a critical aspect. Um, I was, I was thinking about this in preparation for the interview that, uh, you know, you've got two people who can be leaders that you could work with in the world. You know, one walks in the room and says, listen, I don't think we can really get this done. It's probably going to fail monumentally. You're all going to lose your jobs. And I'm not really sure if this is a good idea, but I, it's the best I can come up with. And then you have the other person who comes into the room and says, I am so excited. I have this vision. I know we can do this. I believe in this. And you folks are critical for me to pulling this off, to making this happen. You know, which leader do you want to be involved with? And so the optimism, the positivity, um, but that that you believe in that person, there's that trust Trust in your judgment, trust in your vision, trust in who you are. So much of that is just purely relationships. And I, I have employees who, by rights, should not be employees of mine anymore. They could probably be doing better elsewhere or, you know, that, that kind of thing. But they, they have stayed because, well, honestly, I think I've handled some things like people who've been ill, for example, very ill, kept them on the payroll, um, we had one guy who was in a coma for a while, literally just kept on paying him. Um, I treat people like I'd like to be treated. And I, I treat it as if, you know, money, you can always make more money, but you can't make more friends. You know, you can. So relationships just truly, truly matter. Um, and, you know, to, to know that you have people that in the, in the, and the horrible chance that you need something, mm. you need people, you need help, you need uh, somebody has something that they can help you with and you know they can help you. Uh, it, it's the greatest feeling in the world when you know that you have that as a resource. So, you know, to, to have a business, you need people and you need money and you may need equipment or various other things. But people, you know, I'll, I'll give you one other thing. Um, we have a business partner in this company. It's uh, cousins of your mom's, as you know. And um, when I, they, when they became partners, he's an extraordinarily successful businessman. When, when they became partners, I literally said to him, so John, you know, what's the secret? <laughs> ha, 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 you know. And he said, find great people and let them do what they do. Hmm. So don't micromanage is the message of that, you know. But part of that is they have to know that you're going to let them do what they do. You're going to let them grow. You're going to empower them to do what they're going to do. Because I know that a big part of what you, you know, like to espouse is empowerment. Philosophically, from a management standpoint, because of that one conversation 20 plus years ago, my entire management philosophy in growing our company has been get great people, empower them to do what they do well, mm. and let them do it. Stay out of their way. Um, you know, so... I, I, forgive me if I'm rambling a little bit on this one, but um, 
you know, that, that's kind of where I come from on relationships. It's just there. I, I, I struggle right now to think of anything. I think you can be successful with relationships if you don't have money. Hmm. I don't know if you can be successful with money if you don't have relationships, if you don't have the resources of people. Um, because nothing gets big without people. You know, if you were if you were to try to figure out who are the best paid individual consultants on the face of the planet or something like that, I have to believe they have some sort of an assistant or staff or other people who let them focus on what they do well, you know, uh, while they support it. So the, the relationships are just critical. Yeah. You, you cannot optimize where you can go without people. To have people, there has to be a relationship because people are not going to work for you forever unless they have a relationship with you, unless they trust you. Um, uh, the only other way that happens is called slavery. So we don't have hopefully much of that in the United States. So. <clears throat> Uh, we have a comment that says, love that this is all about relationships. And I think you, I don't just think you are right. And I think this is something for entrepreneurs on their path who are maybe a little bit, they're just starting out. They don't really recognize this because the first thought in the mind is I have to just do this on my own. Like I'm going to do this. And it's all about the individual. And I think as the journey goes, you start to realize that you can't, you can do it on your own, but it's probably not going to be as fun or as easy or as fast. Or as wise. Hmm. As a purely business matter, um, there there is a consultant group out of Canada that I have tremendous respect for. And hopefully I'm not giving away something I shouldn't give away, but they have a focus on what they call a unique genius. So what is the most unique thing about Bridget Sisko? That a lot of people can do a lot of things, but very few can do this, this thing. Like for example, get on air like this, like you're doing and hold interviews and, and glean things from people, bring out from people the most interesting information that's needed by other people. Um, everything else that is not that unique genius, someone else can do better than you. And that area of unique genius is probably what will pay the most. So if you're thinking in terms of money, Focus on your unique genius and pay someone else to do the other things. And by the way, this is coming from a, you know, closet control freak who <laughs> likes to do everything himself also. But there are, there are just simply barriers, um, obviously physical barriers, meaning you only have so much time in a day and there's only so much you can do. But then there are the, the business barriers that when you spend time doing things that someone else can do for far cheaper than your own time, it's costing you money. So put aside control, put aside the sense that I can do it better than everybody else or whatever it may be. An entrepreneur cannot move forward being the be all and end all. The entrepreneur moves forward by focusing on what he or she is most uniquely gifted to do and finding great people to fill the gaps around that and build something. That's, I hate to say it, but it's like, it's a very simple thing, but it's the secret. It truly is. I, I could never have done what I've done without some wonderful people around me. Mm. Um, you know, you know, I sing in concerts. I couldn't do that without a guy who's been playing piano with me for 40 years. 
who he and I breathe together when we're on stage. You know, it's that. So you have to have people. And I would say to any entrepreneur, any young, new, you know, growing entrepreneur, that you have to look deep inside yourself and say, what do I really do well? Um, and I will tell you what I really do well, personally, is probably two things. One is relationships uh, engendering trust in other people. So I've been able to attract financial advisors from around the country to work with me because a lot of companies are very big and they have no idea if they're just going to get hammered somehow by people. With me, they talk to me and they feel they know exactly what they're getting and that they can trust that. Uh, and the second thing is that I have a vision as to what the industry can be that I'm in and how we can be different and how we can be better and things like that. Um, those two things are what I focus my time on. And it's where I am, where I am, I guess, at this point. Mm. I think it's really interesting that, you know, we called this conversation the future of visionary leadership. And two of the things that we've really been talking about most are relationships and like holding that big vision. Um, so I'd love to hear about some of the big visions you've had on your journey. You know, which ones worked out, which ones didn't work out, and what did you learn along the way? Wow. Okay. Well, I mean, the, the first vision is the one that I had that was this company that's fortunately been successful, um, which was which is to say a vision of a company that would provide financial advisors an independent platform, unbiased. They don't not telling them what they had to do or sell. It was their job to determine what would be best for their client. And we would get it and provide it for them so that they could get it to their client. So, um, you know, that was that's a 180 degree turnaround from 30 years ago when I started in this business, which is we tell you what to sell. We make a product, we tell you to sell it, and that's how it works. Um, the business has moved from that to the advisor works for the client, and all of those companies are now pitching the advisor. So I was right about that, and happily so. Uh, so that one was right. I was very involved in activism um, with government for a period of years, going back about 10 years or so ago. I had a vision as to how we could make government more efficient. Uh, and it was driven in part by when I was an elected official uh, at the municipal level, there were just lots and lots of elderly people in my town who could not afford the continuing property tax increases that just kept on hitting and hitting and hitting when they were living on social security and pensions, mm -hmm. which are relatively flat, to speak, you know, not specific. Precisely, but they're relevant. So I, I empathized with them and I was like, why can't we figure out how to make government do things better so that these folks don't have to constantly be uh, forced to live through this? And I had this thought that the problem with government is that there's no competition in government. See, in a, in a very macroeconomic sense, competition is what drives down price. If there's nobody else doing something, you can charge anything you want. But if there are five companies doing the same thing, you know, then you have to compete on price to a certain degree. And so it keeps costs down for the consumer. Well, in government, there's none of that. Hmm. Uh, unions dictate where things go from that standpoint. Uh, you know, people are not motivated. They don't get bonuses to be better at what they do. Um, so there are there are a lot of wonderful people in government, but the structures of it don't engender the type of um, results-driven stuff 
that the private sector does because competition drives the private. You either you either do well and compete or you're out of business. So so I came up with a series of ways to try to um, infuse competitive pressures into the government sector. Um, and uh, some of it went very well. Uh, one thing, one initiative that I put out there saved my town $5 million alone. Um, but on a broader scale, I needed greater cooperation from other mayors and uh, other people, you know, beyond my own community. And once you got to that level, um, people were not, <laughs> I remember going to one meeting and a guy said to me, this is probably in 2007 or eight. He said, Tim, you are 10 years ahead of your time. This stuff still hasn't happened. Therefore, I was more than 10 years ahead of my time. <laughs> and I, I may have been utterly crazy with what I was doing. So that's an example of what, what I'll call a failure. And I, and I, not that I don't think it still makes sense. It makes all the sense in the world economically, but these folks um, moving that, moving that ship, you know, I'm pushing an aircraft carrier with my nose, sort of, you know? Um, so I think you have that. Uh, I'm, I have some new ventures that I'm going to start now that I'm making a partial career change basically. And I have a vision, uh, you and I have talked about one of them, which is, unfortunately, I've had to settle a lot of lawsuits in my time for people who uh, whose financial advisors stole money from them. And as, as sad and horrible as all of that is, um, you know, my company and I have to take responsibility for certain things. That's just the way that it is in business. But at the end of the day, a lot of the people involved also ignored certain information that came to them that should have alerted them that they did not have money where they thought they had money and things like that. So I'm working on a business that will educate people about how to avoid being a victim of investment fraud from an investment representative, a financial advisor. Um, and that may turn into an even larger business. We'll see. I have a vision of a company that's kind of similar to LifeLock, but helps people avoid investment fraud as opposed to identity fraud. Mm. They are similar problems in terms of being tens of billions of dollars a year that are taken away, but there's nothing out there to protect people from investment fraud. So, you know, we'll see. Interview me in 10 years. We'll see what happens. <laughs> we'll do round two. <laughs> yeah. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> really cool. So, uh, what have I learned from it? I'll just say quickly, you know, um, the one thing I have learned is I will never not try something because I think it's not going to work. Mm. Um, I remember years ago, a guy telling me that the company that I was creating back then was silly because you're doing a part of the business that, you know, is moving, people are moving away from the part of the business. And I said, well, if they're not going to move away from it that fast in the next 20 years, that this won't make sense. Eventually there may be no such thing as a broker dealer in this country doing retail brokerage business, but it still had a place. Um, and I was right about that. So, you know, I've, I've learned not to listen to everybody else. Um, I listen to my gut. I think you have to, as an entrepreneur, be ready to, to move on a dime, though, to shift. Because you will realize eventually that something isn't working. Some concept you had isn't working. Part of the business that I started was a servicing arm that ultimately I decided was not scalable, meaning you needed just as many bodies to do it as clients that you had it for and you couldn't make a profit at it, as opposed to the parts of the business that are largely processed electronically by, by um, computers. And you could do a billion transactions the same as you could do 50. So 
uh, I focused on the scalable part once I came to that realization. So, you know, don't not do something because other people think you're insane, but be ready to pivot. Be ready to make a shift. I'll tell you one other thing. If you don't understand strategy, if, you, if you've never studied business, a business plan, what that is and what that can be, because everybody should have their own life business plan, a life plan. It's very similar to really, what is your mission? Mission. What is your vision of yourself for your future? What are your goals? How are you going to make that happen? It's, it's, a, it's a strategic planning process, but it's for an individual. If you don't have that, you'll never get where you could go if you don't think, think things through that carefully, because it really, truly will guide so much of how you drive your life forward. Not just, not just your business, but your life. Um, I would say, you know, those are kind of the key lessons I know now that I wish I had known when I was your age. Those are amazing. And I, I'm laughing to myself because on this podcast the other day, we were talking about growing a business and, you know, seeing success and all these things. And I said, yeah, I'll never forget. My dad would say, yeah, did you do the SWOT analysis on that? <laughs> you know, what were your strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats? Um, there you go. So thank you. By the way, I learned that from one of my employees. Hmm. I don't have an MBA. I didn't go to business school. I have a terrific degree in television and film production. So, <laughs> you know, I, 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 like, I used to joke with my clients that my, you know, my degree in communications really set me up well for a future as an entrepreneur in the financial services <laughs> world. So, I mean, but, but I learned. I recognized at a certain point that that was an area where I had a deficiency. I had an employee who had an MBA, had a very strategic mind. I spent a lot of time just listening to him. And then finally it hit me. Okay. I need to go learn about this. And you know, some of the most important stuff I learned was from him, not from him, but also learning that I needed to learn that material. That, hmm. Hmm. that makes a lot of sense. For you, it sounds like some of your employees have been major teachers. And I'm curious if you've had any other like very pivotal teachers or even books that you've read that really helped you on your own journey. Um, well, yeah, sure. First of all, Rudy Giuliani was the mayor of New York for a number of years, New York City. Uh, whatever people may think of him today, he was an incredible mayor of New York. I read his book and it was absolutely fantastic for leadership. Uh, to me, the best book written in 30 years on leadership. A lot of, listen, forgive me, a lot of people talk about these things, write about these things, you know, and a lot of it's from people who have, um, uh, who are consultants. Rudy Giuliani turned around New York City. And so I look at that and I say that that was really, you know, a pretty amazing thing, I would say. Uh, I, I read a, a seminal book for me, Henry Kissinger, former St Secretary of State in the 1970s, wrote a book called Diplomacy. And that book was hugely helpful to me in understanding the concept of dealing with three-dimensional chess. Now, I'm terrible at three-dimensional chess. I'm not saying I'm good at it. But the concept that Everything you do is going to have an impact somewhere else. You need to think, okay, what is that impact going to be on the person I'm dealing with and on the other people who find out about it and the people that find out about what my partner in this deal did and what are all of those impacts going to be and how are they going to change what's going to happen or, or affect what's, you know, what's going to happen the day the deal is signed kind of thing. You know? So it helps you to think much broader 
than the moment, than the issue at hand. It helps to, you know, everything in business, you you always have to try to stay at the 30,000 foot view. You're going to do a lot of things that are right down here on the ground that got to get done operationally, whatever. But that 30,000 30, foot view, you can never afford to lose track of that. And I'll tell you one other thing. A good book on negotiating tactics is really important because most of us really don't get any training on negotiating. And, and there is a skill to it. There's an art to it. So either that or watch Madam Secretary, the uh, former TV show of Taya Leone and Tim Daly, which mom and I are binging at the moment. That's a good time. I really like the the visual of this like chessboard and the reminder that every single thing you do in business has some kind of impact beyond just the what's in front of you. And I'm no chess player. I literally have no idea how to play, but it makes sense that everything is impacted based on one decision and everything has a reaction based yeah. on those decisions. I mean, every, everybody, everybody in the future who's in a position of leadership, you need to understand leadership. You need to be not afraid to have a vision, not be afraid to fail. Um, be ready to pivot. That's the thing. You're going to fail. Something's not going to go the way you think it's going to go. Whatever you envision, it's not going to happen. But you need to be ready to pivot to move with what can happen, to move with what is possible in the moment as you move forward. And, you know, so, and by the way, a great way to lose the confidence of the people that you work with if you're a leader is to fail to do that, especially if it's obvious to you, but you're just stuck, like ego-wise, committed to a path or whatever it is. People don't want to be on a dying, you know, a sinking ship. So you, you really have to be ready to do all of those things if you're going to lead something into the future and be successful with it. That's an incredible piece of advice. What would you say that your final words of wisdom are for those people who maybe consider themselves visionary leaders and maybe who just want to be the leader of their own life? What would you tell them? Uh, 30,000 for you. Dream big, be prepared to accept a little less, uh, believe in yourself, do your homework. You know, that's sort of like the Rudy Giuliani and the SWAT stuff. Um, if you have no skill at a certain thing, find someone who does. You know, don't try to do something you actually don't have the ability to do. And accept that certain that you are not capable of everything. Focus on what you really are passionate about and that you really have a unique gift for. And find great people to help you do the rest of it. I think that's, you know, those are simple, simple <laughs> rules that I've lived by and it's worked out really well. Cool. Well, I just want to thank you so much for all your wisdom. I feel like I just got like an MBA sitting here. So it was a successful interview. <laughs> Well, I just saved a lot of money, I guess. I don't have to help you get an MBA now. Great. Thank you so, just so much. Kidding. Just kidding. Okay. You're very welcome. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Thank you guys for really supporting this channel and this mission. I would highly encourage you, not only are these episodes live, but they're also created by my incredible husband into an actual podcast. So head over to Apple Podcasts, rate and review. Tell us why you love this show. Share it with your friends so we can really get this message of empowerment out there into the world. I want to see more leaders who have this big vision for humanity. And I'm just so grateful to be here with you all. So thank you very much and have an awesome weekend.